I think we need to be reminded that the Ten Commandments do not begin with prohibitions. They don't begin with the thou shalt nots. If I were to ask some of you, do you know the Ten Commandments, you'd probably say, well, thou shalt not, and that's the way you'd start. But the Ten Commandments do not start with the thou shalt nots. They begin with the character of God. Because before we worship as we ought or serve as we ought, we have to know whom we worship and serve and why we worship Him and why we serve Him. And so God begins um, this this, uh, code of conduct of life by revealing His character and He discloses the essential nature of His character like this, that He's a God of power. He delivered them from a bondage that was uh, uh, severe and He delivered them because He loved them and He bases these rules on on the manifestation of what kind of God He is. Because he always gives before he asks. Before he lays down a single rule, he lets us know what kind of God he is. And before he asks from us, he gives to us. It's kind of like when your kids were little, you know. I think most parents can relate to this. My kids used to come up to me and say, Daddy, I need some money for Christmas. And I said, well, why? Do you need some money? So I won't buy you something. And I'm thinking, you want me to give you money so you can buy me something? I said, oh, okay, I got it figured out. You want money to buy me something. So I give them money and they buy me something. Depending on what I want, you know, (laughs) give them money and they buy me. And I get it back. And that's kind of what is happening. Uh, what happens here is that God uh, is gracious and loving to give. And based upon that love of God and His benefits, He asks of us this kind of life, this conduct. And I have a feeling that God is not so much concerned about a service which is not the expression of gratitude. And so he lays the foundation of what he's done for us. And on the basis of that, this is what he asks or demands of us, what he commands of us. Now there are two observations that need to be made right up front. One is that the negative character of these commandments. Law prohibits because man is sinful. Law prohibits because man is sinful. But these prohibitions presuppose as their foundation a positive command. Now what I mean to say by that is this, is that we are forbidden to do some things. Thou shalt not uh, commit murder, thou shalt not steal, etc. And we are forbidden to do something because we are inclined to do it for sure. We have a nature to do that. But that's not the only reason we are forbidden to do it. The the, the issue is not that He forbids us to do it. 
just because we're inclined to do it, but because we ought to do the opposite of it. So every time there is a prohibition, there is, it implies a deeper thou shalt. Every time he says thou shalt not, he implies a deeper thou shalt. You leave tonight and you head off down to Evergreen. If you're heading that way, you're going to come to a stoplight down here. And that stoplight uh, may be on red, and so you, you stop, and you're forbidden, you're prohibited from moving on till it turns green. Now, the reason why that stoplight is on red is so people on 3rd Street can go past. And the prohibition is in order that something else can occur, something else can go through. So that the, the law of God, the code of conduct is given, prohibiting us from doing the things to which we are inclined, that's not the real reason, but so that the opposite of that might be done. The second observation is this, that one cannot build a theory of ethics without a reference to a relationship to God. Let me say this so everybody can understand it. One cannot build a theory of ethics without a reference to God, or a re without reference to a relation to God. In other words, it is not possible for a person to go out and live the principles of the Ten Commandments unless he has a vital relationship with God. Now the mistake many of us make is, is that we take these codes of conduct, and these shall nots, and this is, we make these rules and regulations that we want to follow for our life, and we go out and we try them and we fail miserably. But doing what God requires is not based upon a decision to do them. It's based upon a reference to our relation with God. And the closer one gets to God, and the nearer he lives to the Lord, the easier it is for him to observe what is taught here. Now I want us to look at them with that kind of um, information up front and look at two or three of these um, commandments. The first, you shall have no other gods before me. Now in its negative form, that, that uh, commandment bears the marks of the condition of the world because everywhere men believed in many gods and still do called polytheism. And Egypt practiced polytheism. They, Egypt swarmed with gods. Now you and I in our culture cannot understand polytheism because there's not a god sitting on every corner in our culture. But what the real issue here is in this commandment is not dealing with, it's not atheism versus belief. It's the question this passage, this commandment raises is this. Who is your God? Now it's not a question of do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? The question is which God do you worship? I think it was Martin Luther who said, that, that our God is whatever our heart relies on or whatever our heart clings to. It's whatever is most important and we lose it and we feel desolate because of it. So the issue tonight is what do you worship 
and where do you worship, and what and whom is your God? And what he's telling us on the opposite end, on the positive end of that is, is that man must enthrone, it's an invitation to enthrone God, this living God, who can say me, who can, who can hear, who can understand, the person we can pray to, and he hears us. So that what, he's, what the commandment prohibits is any other God, and what it promotes is that God is enthroned. That is the true God. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, of the, on, on the, children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to those, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I think I have an idea of what you're, um, you may be saying inside your mind, your heart. I don't think this really uh, pertains to me. I'm not sure that com commandment is really relevant to us. We don't have... Uh, you know, man-made idols that we've erected anywhere, worship some uh, idols made with man by man. It's interesting that of all the commandments, the biblical writers mention this command more than all the others. And I assume they do that because they anticipated that this would be the one most, we would most likely break. And I assume that the biblical writers constantly remind us of this command because they, they, they must assume that this is the one we'd have the most problem with. Now, I think it'd be helpful for us to get a definition of idolatry. Augustine says that idolatry is the worship of anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. I need you to get that, please. Idolatry is the worship of something that ought to be used and using something that ought to be worshipped. And the issue here is twofold. Now watch this. The issue here really is the issue of manipulation. It's using something that ought to be worshipped. Um, I don't know whether you've um, uh, been keeping up with the um, controversy that's on television now about these uh, so-called TV evangelists and these people that uh, out for you know begging for money all the time. Um, if you ever you get up early enough and turn on the right channel, you can see uh, Robert Tilton on television on the, in the morning. Uh, Stephen Blow, a guy that I'm uh, really hooked on, he writes a column every other day in the Dallas Morning News. He had a magnificent column today about this guy in Dallas that's a minister of the Eagle's Nest Cathedral, and uh, he's out sending out money, begging for money. He has three houses uh, valued at uh, three quarters of, one of them's valued at three quarters of a million dollars. And 
He's telling people they need to borrow $50. Everybody needs to borrow $50 from somebody and send it in. He drives a Ferrari. His wife drives a Mercedes. They have all these, this, this empire of money. And uh, uh, Stephen Blow sat down with him last week, you know, and tried to figure out, you know, try to get some kind of reasoning out of that whole thing. You asking people to borrow $50 and send it to you when you could, when you've got an empire worth millions? Does that make sense? Well, the whole theme of uh, Robert Tilton is, is that, that God wants everybody to be successful. And if you send in, you know, make a vow, so to speak, and, and uh, send this vow to him, then, then he'll, um, he has from on the authority of God's word that you'll be successful and prosperous. It's all a matter of sending in uh, your money. I've noticed that the vow is always made to him. You know. True story. God called me one day. He said, can I come by and visit you? It hadn't been, it hadn't been six months ago. By the way, uh, Mr. Brewster called me the other day from Washington in response to a call I'd made to him, and he asked me about this. This guy came into my office, and he had one of these letters from one of these hucksters, you know. And this guy had uh, uh, made a vow to uh, one of these TV evangelists, and he hadn't followed through on his vow. This guy was scared to death. He said, can you, can you tell me what's going to happen to me if I don't fulfill this vow? He said, what should I do? He said, I made a vow I can't fulfill. He said, I can't send all this money I promised. And he had all these letters that had come as a result of him not fulfilling his vow that he's going to be in trouble, maybe die, his house is going to burn down, his children's going to get boils and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, i tell you what I'd do with that. I'd throw it in the trash, what I'd do with it. And, and, and the man was as sincere as a man can ever be. He said, oh, I would never do that. He said, if I don't follow through on this vow, something might, terrible might happen to me. Well, in my opinion, humble and accurate, that is a subtle form of idolatry. And what it teaches is, is this, that you take this God that we're to worship and manipulate Him and if you say a certain thing, or if you go through a certain ritual, or if you have a certain formula, or if you pay a certain price, then you can manipulate this God, do what you want Him to do for you. That's the whole, that's the whole basis of idolatry in the Old Testament, my friend. People worship Baal because Baal was the God of prosperity and success. And these gods were erected all over the land and, and people worshiped Baal because they thought if they worshiped Baal they'd have a good crop, if they didn't they'd have a drought. And so what was happening here was that they erected something that, to manipulate. That's a, what, what, what these um, hucksters are doing, that's what I call them, are teaching a subtle form of, of idolatry. But somewhere along the line, we've convinced ourselves that that's true. And somehow we believe that if we treat God a certain way, if we tell God a certain thing, if we practice a certain religion, if we say a certain prayer a certain way, that, that God will come through for us. It's the manipulation, it's idolatry. And sometimes you read, if you will, 1 Samuel chapter 4. They have the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, uh, the uh, 
symbolical presence of God. And they were fixing to go into battle. And they said, man, we need to take the Ark of the Covenant along with us because if we have the Ark of the Covenant with us, God will surely keep us from being defeated. So they got the Ark of the Covenant and they carried it into battle and got totally annihilated. And what God was trying to teach them in that experience was is that He's not something you can manipulate or use. And so erecting a graven image is more than just putting some idol down in your house and worshiping it. It's, it's worshiping something that ought to be used and using something that ought to be worshipped. Right? The second danger is the danger of an easy tolerance. The danger of an easy tolerance. Now watch this carefully. The tendency of these people who were going into Canaan was to mingle with the local Canaanitish population to adopt many of its ways. And the idea was, we're not going to deny God. We're just going to incorporate some of these gods from Canaan into our practice. And we're not going to refuse to worship God. The fact is, we're just going to worship some of their gods as well. And what was happening was this, the temptation to add to their faith in a tolerant manner. Now watch this. It was a, it was a temptation to indulge in a intolerance of these other gods and what they practice. In our day, tolerance is almost regarded as a virtue. Now let me see if I can put that you know, in, a, in an illustration you might can identify with. One of the deepest, most profound temptations that came to Jesus was at this point. And so the devil took him up on a high place and let him look all around. He said, now I know, this is a Tidwell translation, this is what was going on. He said, now I know Jesus, you want to rule the world, you want, you're the Lord. There's no question in his mind who is Lord. He said, now I, all of this I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. What he was saying was this. He was not telling Jesus that he was to turn his back on Jehovah. He wasn't telling Jesus that he was to reject the, the, the command of God. He was telling him you just need to compromise with what I'm about a little bit. You want to be successful? Make that big deal? Just compromise a little bit. You want to be popular? Compromise a little bit. You want, to, you want to succeed in life? Just compromise. You don't have to deny your faith. Just, just compromise. I heard Ron Dunn say one time, and when he said that, I thought, now that couldn't be true. Then I got to thinking about it, and the more I think about it, the more it probably is. He said most of us would exchange our gods if the world was thrown in. Now let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying, I'll, I'll give up my God. I'll, 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 I'll uh, exchange my God for yours if you'll give me the world to boot. I'll give up my God if, if you'll give me success, if you'll give me popularity, if you'll give me fame. Listen to what Elton Trueblood says. He says, What the world needs far more than it needs a fashionable tolerance, which is fundamentally patronizing in spirit, 
is a burning faith which can change men's lives. Great advances come in culture, not when all distinctions are blurred in a hazy and jovial goodwill, but when sharp distinctions are made. Distinctions dictated by the truth. Power comes not by supposing that one view is as good as another, but by finding an honest inquiry what the objective truth seems to be and then following it with stubborn courage tempered by humility. There can be no cutting edge that is not narrow. And so Elijah got all his people together up on Mount Carmel. There were all these prophets of Baal up there. And there were these Jews, these Israelites. And this was the challenge. If the Lord is God, follow Him. If He's not, if He's Baal, follow Him. But get in or get out. Get on or get off. Do something. I said to my Sunday school class, you would never hear me say that from the pulpit, but I just did. I mean, it's time, God says, to, to, to stop this compromise and, 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 and develop some kind of a narrow edge that says, this is the way I'm going, this is God's way, and I'm not going to go any other way. And if we can't do that, then get out or get off. That's what he's saying. In 1946, the British thought they did a great thing. They divided the subcontinent of India into two continents, into two sections. The northern section was Pakistan. The southern section was India. They fought. They did the right thing. They did a terrible thing. Because... The Pakistanis who were down in the south wanted to get back up to, to Pakistan. The Muslims wanted to go back up north, their homeland. And the Hindus that were up in Pakistan now with this new border wanted to come back down to the south, where the, you know, in India. And, and so you got this conflict between the Muslims and the Hindus. And they met on the border and they fought and millions were killed in the carnage. There was a missionary by the name of, a Quaker missionary by the name of Cliff Robinson that writes about it. He said that, that there, there was this militant group of Muslims that came into uh, uh, one of the major cities in India and began to go up and down the streets hauling people out of the houses and murdering them, the, the, the Hindus out of these houses and murdering them. And he said they were in a place where they could watch and they saw these Muslims, they was going from house to house dragging these Hindus out and murdering them, men, women, children, right out in the middle of the street. And he said they began to move and they were coming up on the houses. There were four Christians who lived right in a row there. And they were wondering what in the world are they going to do to those Christians? We said in that day Christians had a big red cross on the front of their houses to say we're Christians. We're neither Hindu nor Muslim. We don't want any part of either one of them. Now just go on by and leave us alone. And he said they were, they, were, they were watching as these Muslims came up to this first house. had a big red cross on it. He said there was so much noise they couldn't hear what they were saying but they talked among themselves and they went on. They went past the second house. When they got to the third house they talked and they talked loudly and all of a sudden they decided 
they just smashed the door down and went inside and, and drug these Christians out in the street and killed them, men, women, children. Cliff Robinson said we wondered what the difference was. I mean, house one, house two, they passed. House four, why did they go into house three? And he said when all the noise settled down and the war kind of settled down, he asked one of them. He said, well, the Muslims said, well, we knew that these men, these people that live in there were Christians, but on the side, these people were making these little wooden, carving these little wooden Hindu idols to make a little extra money, a little money on the side. And this, these Muslims would spit on an idol. They hated an idol. And this Muslim said, these people say they're Christians, but they have idols in their life and they deserve to die. Now what God says in the, this commandment is this, is the Lord God is God, and He is a jealous God, and therefore He gives no latitude for any other idol. He gives no latitude to worship what should be used, and to use what should be worshipped. Let me get the last one, this next one, then I'll be the last. I think we need to hear this, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now what does that mean? Our first impression, our first thought suggests that this will be a prohibition against cursing and profanity, and it is. God's very serious about His name. And He knows that the way we use His name reflects how we really feel about Him. Hallowed be Thy name is the sincere prayer of every serious Christian. One of the symptoms of a seriously sick society is its national irreverence. It is nothing to hear men and women alike using God's name in vain. Somebody said he went into a restroom not long ago and he saw this graffiti on the wall and one little uh, uh, sentence said this, Damn is not God's last name. One of the symptoms of a seriously sick society is its national irreverence. It's safe to say that a person who uses God's name as a smear word is not really on speaking terms with God. You may have seen when Merv Griffin had that uh, talk show several years ago and he interviewed Charlton Heston. Now Moses, I mean Charlton Heston, who played Moses and who played in Ben-Hur, was asked by Merv Griffin, he said, was your life changed having played these religious characters on, in the movies? And Charlton Heston didn't um, really answer the question. He thought a long time, and this is what he said. Well, Merv, you can't walk barefoot down Mount Sinai and be the same person you were when you went up. I don't know exactly what that meant. I think it means, means this. That you can't take God's name as a curse word 
if you have ever experienced Him in a vital way. You can't walk barefoot down Mount Sinai and be the same person you were when you went up. I mean, the Jews wouldn't even pronounce God's name. They, when they got ready to, to, to uh, use God's name, they bathed and they put on this garb. And, and if they were writing His name, they would not dip their pen back in the ink even while they were, if they were writing it, they, they ran out of ink. And if the king came by and addressed them, they would ignore him until they finished the word. It was so hallowed to the Jew. Now this word vain is a word that means empty and lifeless. It means lacking a sense of urgency. And so really this is a call to repent of the sin of a mild religion, says Elton, Elton Trueblood. The greatest sinning with the name of God, now listen to me carefully. The greatest sinning with the name of God, however, is not done in a bar room where His holy name is interspersed with sewer talk. The greatest Sinning with the name of God takes place in the church where the words of the songs and the prayers and the sermons are not really meant. Listen to me. We take His name in vain if we say we are Christians but we don't care if the world goes to hell. And we take His name in vain if we call Him Lord and do not offer ourselves to Him. And we take His name in vain if we profess a belief in Jesus Christ and, it make, and He makes no difference in the way we live. That is taking His name in vain. Profanity is denying Him with our lives while we profess Him with our lips, that's profanity in its most severe sense. And it's like that story you've heard over and over again of the man who was caught in a crime and he was brought before Alexander the Great. And before Alexander the Great was to pronounce judgment on him, he asked him, Sir, what is your name? And the man said, Alexander. And he was taken back. And Alexander the Great said, Well, man, either change your name or change your life. So that Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says this, Either change your name or change your life so that your life measures up to your profession." And then I think there is a misuse of power here. I want to finish with this. There was a belief and has been a belief that if you possessed one's name, if you knew his name, you had power over the thing itself. So that to know one's name was to possess power. That's um, why when they hauled Peter and John off to jail after they healed the man at the gate. They asked him, by what power or in whose name did you do this? 
Sometimes I think we use God's name because we think it will get me what I want. You a Christian? Well, sure I'm a Christian. Why? Because being a Christian will get me what I want. I want to quit there. Let's pray together. Our Father, the deeper we get into what this is about, the more conscious we are of how serious this business of being a believer is. And how there is no room for compromise. There is no room for hypocrisy, for a sham religion. And that you're a God who is holy, who requires of us absolute reverence, obedience, respect. Forgive us, God, because we are so blasé about our walk with thee. Touch us tonight with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. I wonder if tonight... If there is any need that needs to be met here at this altar, and maybe you need to come and give your life to Christ. Somebody might need to come tonight and say, I need to join this church. I want to serve God with you people. Whatever God leads you to do, we want you to do it while we stand, sing, come.